still our hearts for a few moments, and then I'll pray and ask for God's help as we come to look at his word together. So let's just be still for a moment. Let's invite the Lord to minister to us by his grace through his word. Father, we do thank you just for the moment to be still. Think of those lovely words of Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. We bow before you, the Holy One of Israel, and we want to give reverent attention to your Spirit speaking to us through the living word Father, just quiet our hearts and by the power of your word and your spirit, do a powerful work among us. And may we open our hearts and have ears to hear what the spirit is saying to us together this morning. Bless the children and the young folk who've gone out to their classes help their teachers to communicate to the kids and young people the unsearchable riches of the grace of Jesus Christ so that together in this time as a church family as we sit under your word we would be nourished and built up from the youngest to the oldest for your glory in Jesus name. Amen. Well, do please turn with me to Revelation 3. Uh, we're looking this morning at verse, uh, verses 14 down to 22, the letter to the church in Laodicea. This is the final letter in this series of seven letters that open the book of Revelation. And this letter is, I believe, without doubt, the most challenging of the letters that we've encountered so far and the most compelling of the letters we've encountered so far. Now, why do I say that? Well, I believe it's the most challenging of the letters because Jesus confronts a problem in the church at Laodicea that is sadly all too present among the church in Northern Ireland today. And that is the problem of lukewarm Christianity. What is that? Well, a lukewarm Christian is one who has a distant relationship with God. Like a married couple or two friends that have drifted apart. Someone who's lukewarm doesn't enjoy much real fellowship with God. They have little affection for God, little personal zeal. A lukewarm Christian may come to church, may serve actively, but they live like Jesus is nothing more than fire insurance from hell, and they don't seem to have any real concern to cultivate a close walk with God. The worst thing about Christian lukewarmness is that this is a condition that is often marked by the lukewarm Christian not even realizing that they're lukewarm. 
Now, for those who this morning are sitting here and may think to themselves, sure, sure, most Christians are lukewarm. It's not really a big deal. Jesus shows us this morning it is a very big deal. It's a very serious sin. It's a very serious Christian sickness that could even be spiritually fatal if something is not done about it. This letter says loud and clear to the church at Laodicea and the church at Great Vic this morning, it's not okay to be in a perpetual state of spiritual lukewarmness. That's why this is such a challenging letter, because it can be quite cutting if we're in a place of perpetual lukewarmness. But I said it's also, without doubt, one of the most compelling letters that we have read so far. What do I mean by that? Well, I say that because it is a letter which really beautifully displays to us the gracious and patient character of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this letter, instead of just leaving us with a rebuke out of harshness and walking away and saying, I've had enough with you all, you lukewarm Christians, We see Jesus in this letter lovingly moving towards those who are lukewarm and inviting them to renew the warmth of their fellowship with him. In verse 20, we see him saying, Behold, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If you've pushed me to the margins, I'm here knocking. And I want you to invite me in afresh to renew fellowship with me, and to discover something far better than lukewarmness. So as we look at this very challenging and very compelling letter this morning, I would counsel you to open your heart, to do what verse 22 at the end calls you to do, open your ears And even now pray and ask for God's help to be attentive to what the Spirit might want to say to you this morning. Perhaps you by grace will hear Christ knocking on your heart this morning. And perhaps by grace you will find yourself rousing, waking up from a slumber and finding renewal in him. Now, like all the other letters that we've seen so far, we have first here in chapter 3, verse 14, an introduction that reveals to us something about the one speaking, something about Jesus. We read in verse 14 that these are the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The first of those three terms is a beautiful name for Jesus, the Amen. This is an allusion to Isaiah 65 verse 15, where the living God is called the God of Amen. He speaks And it is so. That's what Amen means. May it be so, Lord. These are the words of the Amen. He says, let there be light at the beginning of creation. And there's light. When he speaks, 
It is so. This is also the one who is called the faithful and true witness, an address from him. This language is from Revelation 19.11, where Jesus is seen to be riding on this great white war horse. And we are told that his name is faithful and true. All his words are trustworthy and true. Then we read at the end of verse 14 in Revelation 3, he's not just the Amen, not just the faithful and true witness, but he is the beginning of God's creation. Now, what does that mean? Well, first, what it does not mean, this does not mean that Jesus is the first being that God created and then made lots of other things through him. That is a heresy known as the Arian heresy, and it was denounced back in the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, then defended vigorously by a wonderful man named Athanasius. There are three possible meanings to this name for Jesus, the beginning of God's creation. First, it could just mean the beginning as in the source or the originator of God's original creation. So John 1, 1, think of this, in the beginning was the word. Without him was nothing made that was made. That's what could be meant by the beginning, the originator, the source of God's creation. Second meaning, it could just mean the ruler of God's creation. That's how the NIV renders the Greek word arche. It can mean beginning, or it can mean a ruler or an authority over someone or something. So it could be that he is the ruler of God's creation. Or the third view could be it is that the new creation is in view. As in, Christ is making all things new. He's doing that work today. In Colossians 1.18, for example, speaking of God's new creation, Paul writes of Jesus, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So wherever we land on our interpretation of that little name for Jesus, he's the beginning of God's creation. The point is pretty much the same. He's the source of all life, the author of all creation, original creation, new creation, He's the sovereign Lord over all. What a wonderful introduction to this letter. Let us recognize that Jesus Christ is the sovereign source and sustainer of all life. When he speaks, it is so. All his words are trustworthy and true. After that introduction comes Jesus' opening words and this confrontation of the spiritual sickness that is present among the Christians in Laodicea. Look down with me, please, at verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Now, in this illustration, Jesus engages the picture of a drink 
sitting at three different temperatures, three drinks, three different temperatures, to communicate something about the spiritual sickness present in Laodicea. The cold drink represents something useful, something good and refreshing, like a cold glass of water when you're dehydrated and roasting on a hot day. Being cold represents something useful, someone who's in a spiritually good place. Being hot then represents something similar, something useful. Think of a good and refreshing, nice hot cup of tea after a nice meal. I think after every meal you need a nice wee cup of tea to seal it in. Again, being hot signifies something useful, being in a good place spiritually. Jesus says, I know the reality of your spiritual state. You're neither at Laodicea like a cold drink or a hot drink. Would that you were either cold or hot. You'd be useful. But in verse 16 he says, but you are lukewarm. And because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now that word spit in the ESV, I think is too weak. There is a perfectly good Greek word for spit. It's a really cool word actually. It's patuo. It's one of those onomatopoeic words. Sounds like what it's conveying. Patuo. That's literally the Greek word for Spit, like what Jesus did when he spat on the dirt and rubbed it in the, man's eye, the blind man's eyes to heal him. But the word patuo is not used here. It's another word, emeo, which means to vomit. You look up your Greek dictionary, to vomit or to throw up. Last summer, I went out for a run and I remember getting back to the car dehydrated, and so incredibly thirsty. I had brought a water bottle with me, but the warmth of the car had made the water lukewarm, and I was already feeling a bit nauseous from my run, but when I drank the warm water, I had to open the car door and spit it out. I thought I was going to throw up. Jesus says, that's how I feel about your lukewarmness. Now, I think there's an Old Testament allusion here to the use of the language of vomiting. In Leviticus 20, God said to his people in the Old Testament, if you walk in my ways, you will enjoy rest in the promised land. But if you drift away from keeping my ways, the land will vomit you out. You will not enjoy the blessing of the promised inheritance. Jesus is saying to those in Laodicea and to us now who are in this lukewarm state, I know the reality. You're lukewarm. 
And this is something you have to take seriously. This warning that this spiritual sickness could be something that leads to us being spat out, this warning is real. And the language is graphic so that it gets our attention and wakes us up. But there's something that I want us to see now in what Jesus says next that, that goes even further to diagnose the heart of the condition that was causing this lukewarmness in Laodicea. What we have to see now is that the lukewarmness present in the believers was not the core issue that Jesus was confronting. Lukewarmness, we'll see, is a symptom that flows from a deeper sickness. Like a good GP traces symptoms down to try and find the source of a problem. They don't just medicate symptoms. They try to trace symptoms down to get to the core sickness. Jesus, like a doctor, traces down through the symptom of lukewarmness to find its source. And the source of the problem in the believers at Laodicea was what we could call an unhealthy sense of self-sufficiency. Summarized by three words in the middle of verse 17, I need nothing. Look at verse 17 with me. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What is making Jesus so disgusted with the Christian lukewarmness that he perceives in this local church? It's that the local believers, many of them, have lost their sense of how desperately they need Christ. That's the core issue. They're the sort of people in Laodicea who have good jobs. They've built up plenty of savings. Whatever their equivalent of good insurance policies was, they've got it. Their lives are comfortable. They've become preoccupied, in fact, with preserving their comfort and enjoying their material well-being. But in the midst of that all, in pursuit of their own agenda, Jesus has slowly and steadily been pushed outside to the margins of their lives. And we have to ask ourselves, might this have happened to any of us here this morning? Many Christians today want to have Jesus as their savior, but they really struggle with the idea of surrendering all of their lives to him as Lord. 
Many Christians today believe that they need Jesus to save them from hell. Yes. But the big problem is their lives are still all about themselves. They are firmly in the driving seat of their lives. And they're not going to relinquish it for anyone. Little self-denial. Little affection for Jesus. Little hunger for time with God. Day goes into day and they don't even see this as a problem. They just think, I've got my ticket to heaven. They'll make sure they're comfortable in this life and Jesus will make sure I'm comfortable in the next. Their prayerlessness preaches a message to God just like the Laodiceans. I need nothing. You'd never articulate it like that. But our functional atheism betrays the reality. Imagine this from Jesus' perspective. He is the source of all creation life. Your next breath comes from his hand. The health you have is from him. He has blessed you with the means to work. He has blessed you with the means to prosper. Not only has he done this, if you're a Christian, he has died for your salvation. He intercedes for you as your high priest. He saved you from hell, and yet you push him to the background of your life as you just get on with your own agenda with pretty much no reference to him outside of Sunday. The sheer ungratefulness of What does Jesus say to such people? Verse 17, you do not realize that you are wretched. That's Jesus' words. You think I'm being too strong? Those are Jesus' words directly. You are wretched. You don't even see it. Pitiable, poor, blind, naked. You think you've got it all. But if Jesus has been pushed to the margins, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, this is a description of you. Don't look around at anyone else. And don't justify your behavior. We've got to do some self-examination here. 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves. To see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves. That Jesus Christ is in you. Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Jesus says the problem that makes me want to vomit you out. Is this lukewarmness that is flowing from your attitude of an unhealthy self-sufficiency. You don't realize that you need me. You're getting on as if you don't even need me. You've built your tower with worldly materialism. And you're, 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 you're just walking through life as if I'm an afterthought. Does this challenge you? Now this is where I'm just blown away by the amazing grace of Jesus. 
because I'm directly trying to reflect not just the text here, but the tone of this text in the urgency and in the language that Jesus uses. And wouldn't it be understandable for Jesus now to say to those lukewarm Christians at Laodicea and to you and your lukewarmness, would it not be justifiable for Jesus to say, so I'm done with you? You've pushed me so far to the margins that, do you know what? I'll just stay outside and I'll walk away. Sure, you wouldn't even notice if I did. But that's not what Jesus does to these lukewarm believers. Look at what Jesus now does in the letter. The wonderful physician now comes, moves towards us in our lukewarmness, and in the second half of this letter, invites lukewarm Christians to renew and rediscover the beauty of a warm, hot, vibrant relationship with him. Jesus, now in the second half of the letter, after diagnosing and confronting the sickness of lukewarmness and self-sufficiency, he now presents the cure to this self-sufficient lukewarmness. And he gives it to us in three stages. Here's the three-part cure to spiritual, self-sufficient lukewarmness. And don't miss the grace that there even is a cure. First, if you are in a place of lukewarmness, Jesus says you need to come to me with a fresh recognition of your spiritual poverty. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. This is beautiful. Jesus offers them the treasures of his mercy for their spiritual poverty his robe of righteousness for their spiritual nakedness and his healing salve for their spiritual blindness. Where is this curing medicine to be found? Jesus says, come and buy all this from me. Now, this is an allusion to the beautiful words of Isaiah 55, 1 to 3. Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy money and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Jesus is saying, you come with nothing, but you can come to me and you can have it all even if you've got nothing. 
there's a statement that I love to make. You hear me say it all the time. In him is everything we need. Spiritually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked people come to Jesus and there's everything they need to make them rich. You know 2 Corinthians 8 8 verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. You know, if you don't understand how wretched you are without him, you'll never appreciate how rich you are with him. I think there's, there's something sorely missing from a lot of gospel preaching today. The serious reality of sin. The serious state of the sinner. Wretched outside of Christ. Pitiable, poor, blind, naked. We're spiritually bankrupt without Christ. And until we recognize what we are without him, how will we ever treasure what we have in him? Maybe your failure to appreciate him has flowed from your failure to appreciate what you are without him. Do you remember that wonderful hymn, Rock of Ages? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. So here's the first cure for your lukewarmness. You come to Jesus and recognize afresh your spiritual poverty. You need him. You need him. Second thing Jesus counsels the Laodiceans and us to do is simply found in that word, repent, in verse 19. But look at Jesus' reaffirmation first of his love at the start of verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. If you felt stung by his words in the first half of this letter, know this reproof comes from the love of the Son of God. Don't get your back up against him. Come to him in earnest repentance. Don't be indifferent. Don't shrug this off. Get serious and repent. That means turn away from lukewarmness. Turn to Christ. Confess that it's not okay that you've been in the lukewarm doldrums of low spirituality for a long time. And ask him to set a new fire boiling under the affections of your heart. Remember. Please remember the foundational understanding of the Christian life is that it is a relationship with God through faith in Christ. The cultivation of our relationship with God is the priority of the Christian life. 
That's what you're repenting of when you come to repent, that you have neglected that relationship. Repentance is saying, Lord, I'm sorry for that. I recognize it. I don't want that to be my reality. So come and light a new fire under my heart today. Then after recognizing our poverty afresh, repenting with zeal and earnestness, the third thing Jesus counsels us to do in that state of lukewarmness is simply to renew our relationship with him. We said earlier that self-sufficient lukewarmness pushes Jesus to the outside of our lives. Well, here in verse 20, Jesus is seen pursuing renewed intimacy with us. I've come to see this picture of Jesus in Revelation 3, verse 20, as perhaps one of the most beautiful displays of the patience and greatness of, and grace of God in all of Scripture. This is one of the most beautiful portrayals of the patience and grace of God in all of Scripture. He could have walked away. But verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Please let that fall on you this morning. I'm sure there's hardly any of us in here, and we can't look back on a stage of our Christian lives and say there's not been times where we haven't been lukewarm. Here's what has made you recover every time. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Now, I've said that there are so many allusions in Revelation to the Old Testament. Do you know where this comes from? This comes from the Song of Solomon. Chapter 5, verse 2 of Song of Solomon. The bride is excited because her beloved groom is coming. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, behold, my beloved is knocking. And then the, the groom says, open to me, my sister, my beloved my dove, my perfect one. Does that not break you? Perfect in the righteousness of Christ. He sees the beauty of his own imputed righteousness. And he says, you've been getting on with your life and you've pushed me to the margins, but open the door to me, my beloved, my perfect one. Jesus says, I'm here. I'm ready to continue this relationship with you, but you must let me in. You must open the door of your heart to me. I will come in, and we will enjoy renewed spiritual communion together, real fellowship. Do you not long for that? That drives everything. We want to know how real can it be? How intimate can it be? How close can we walk with God and know his presence to the point where it's just so beautiful? You know, that's what you'll be enjoying the fullness of in heaven. You'll be enjoying the beauty and glory of fellowship with Jesus. And if you're disinterested in it now, You'll get to heaven and you'll be bored. 
What does it look like to let him in? Well, simply this, to pray this morning. Lord, I'm sorry that I've pushed you to the boundary of my life. I want you to come back into the center. I want to renew my relationship with you. Now, maybe this for you, this incoming week, will look like a renewal, a renewal in your prayer life. Maybe what it, what, will, what it will look like for you is it starts to ignite something of a hunger for a hunger for God and a thirst for a thirst. Just There could be a longing this morning that's awakened and, and you just want more of the Lord. But more than anything, the opening the door to Jesus is renouncing that self-sufficient pride that fails to recognize that you desperately need Jesus. And remember, as important as it is to receive this on an individual level, it's also important that we remember that this was written to a church. A few years ago, I don't know if any of you remember this, we had a doorbell that I don't think had a silencer on it. And I'd be in the middle of preaching and someone would turn up late to church and in the middle of my message you'd hear a ding dong. And I'd be looking there glaring at some of the deacons go to the door quickly and let whoever that is in. Now we don't want that to be our experience with Jesus here at Great Vic. What do I mean? Well, there are lots of churches that go through the motions very busy with ministries, doing lots of good things. But right at the core of it, there's not a real deep longing to know and experience God. That's what I long for us at Great Vic for, a more compelling vision. Not just doing ministry and doing evangelism and doing stuff. That we'd be a people hungry to walk with God and hungry to experientially know God. In our gatherings, we don't want Jesus to be outside ringing the doorbell saying, I wish I could get in, in that, with all those religious people. I wish I could come in. No, we want to be saying, Lord, the doors are wide open. What does this look like? Well, I think it looks like us coming to church actually hungry to meet with the Lord, to focus and to feast on Christ spiritually. We're open to hear what the Spirit is saying to us even when it's uncomfortable. And we're open to let the sovereign Spirit have his reign. Now, if you thought this wasn't already you know, challenging and compelling enough, wow, the conclusion to this letter now. It just takes everything to another level. We've seen here the diagnosis of the sickness of spiritual self-sufficiency and lukewarmness. We've seen the cure. Recognize your poverty. Repent. Renew your relationship with Jesus. But now, like so many of the other letters, this letter closes with an incredible, motivating promise that perhaps, once again, is the most incredible, motivating promise of all these letters, this speaks of the levels of intimacy that Jesus Christ is inviting us into. This is what we see now in verse 21. This is an intimacy we taste now, but in the future will be off the charts. The one who conquers 
I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now, follow with me here. Many of us last year witnessed the coronation of King Charles. Do you remember that very powerful scene after the entrance and that Latin song, Vivat, live! Charles is enthroned. There's a scene where he was sitting on the throne with the orb and the scepter and the crown, the symbols of his sovereign reign. Imagine if you were there at Westminster Abbey and he called you out of the crowd and he said, you come, sit down with me on the throne. It's almost mind-blowing, isn't it? And yet that is what the sovereign King of Kings and Lord of Lords is telling us right here. Jesus said, I overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. And now, when you overcome, when you remain faithful unto death, or when I return, I will take you to myself, and you will be invited, yes, to sit with me on my throne, to share in some glorious, mysterious way in his reign, seated tucked up, if we may say reverently, with the Father and the Son, almost like the Father is saying, enjoy this with me. Look at the extent of the intimacy of what we're being invited into. And yet, you want to get on with your wee project of building your material empire on earth and pushing this Christ to the margins. What are you doing? He said you won't be in the margins in heaven. You'll sit with me. And in his grace and mercy and kindness, he's put you in this church this morning to give you this wake-up call and to say, Hear by the Spirit the knock of Jesus. Now here is what's amazing. <laughs> this is how the letters close. Seated with Christ and the Father on the throne. Now what do you get in Revelation 4 and 5? An extended vision of the throne. And that's where we're going next week and the week after. Chapter 4. Do you see it? After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. A door standing open. The voice, like a trumpet, come here and I'll show you what must take place after this. And then we get the most resplendent vision of the throne in heaven. And then chapter 5. We can't access the throne in all the redemptive glory. John weeps. But then he's told to weep no more because the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. And then he looks and he sees a slain lamb. There's how you get to the throne. Through the lamb. See, Revelation does make sense. It does fit together. It's not just some crazy book that you don't read. It's a beautiful picture of the sovereign majesty of God to encourage weary saints to keep going, keep persevering. Don't be seduced by the world. 
so excited to preach chapters four and five over the next two weeks. But for now, the closing refrain of verse 22 is where we need to finish. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit's words are Jesus' words. The Spirit has been speaking to us. What has he been saying to you? And how will you respond? Don't go out of here with Jesus still knocking on the door. Let me give you this very simple, practical prayer to respond to this message and go into this week. This is a prayer that will help you counteract the temptation to spiritual self-sufficiency. And this prayer, you can, you can pray it at work, in the middle of whatever you're doing, whatever your work is, no matter how consuming it is. The problem in Laodicea is the people were saying, I do not need you. Here's a prayer I want you to take forward into this week. Lord, I need you. That's the simple response I'm asking you to make. Lord, I need you. Pray that now. Pray it this afternoon. Pray it this evening. Pray it when you're dealing with something difficult at work. If you're a teacher and it's a difficult class, just inwardly, Lord, I need you. Maybe you're struggling with depression or anxiety. and Just, Lord, I need you. We need the Lord to cope with everything. That simple little prayer will turn your prayerless self-sufficiency into a prayerful dependence if it flows from your heart. So let's hear what the Spirit is saying to us. Let's turn and say, Lord, I need you. Let's pray as we close and prepare to enjoy communion around the Lord's table together. Father, I, I really believe that some of us have to do real transactions with you in this moment. And I pray, Lord, that you would both break down and build up, convict and cure, wound and heal. What amazing grace that you would patiently keep knocking and moving towards us when you've done so much for us and yet we forget you and push you to the margins. Thank you for patiently knocking. Thank you for giving us ears to hear the knock. I just pray that no one would grow so hardened that they don't hear it anymore. And I pray, Lord, that even now, as we respond and, and just perhaps in the most fitting way, recognize what Jesus desires to have this communion with us. As we gather around the Lord's table and see by the eyes of faith Christ, the unseen host, who welcomes us to come in faith to his table so that we can share fellowship with the living Christ, Lord, during this time, help us to put things right with you. If there are people here and they're not Christians, 
I pray that they would hear and respond and welcome you, Lord Jesus, into the heart and center of their lives, repenting of their sin and their self-sufficiency and putting their hope in Christ. But together, Lord, may we be nourished now around your table and as we rejoice in the nourishment we derive from Christ. In him is everything we need and we are deeply needy, Lord. Amen. As I said, we're going to respond now and have uh, communion together. Um, This is for anyone who knows and loves Jesus as their Lord and Savior and who is in good standing with their local church. If you're a Christian, you know and love the Lord, you're welcome to share in this meal with us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you not to take the bread, not to take the cup, and instead to take time just to reflect on what it is that is making you push Jesus away. If you came in and you didn't realize we were having communion this morning and you'd like to share in it, uh, during our next hymn, you could nip to the back. There's some bread and some cups at the back there. You can get those so that after our hymn, we're all settled and ready to just commune with the living Christ. To prepare our hearts for that, let's stand just and sing this lovely communion hymn, Behold the Lamb.